You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. at Stanton program held in conjunction with the Constant Reader Bookshop at Crow's Nest. There's Jay up the back there. I'm Ian Hoskins, North Sydney Council's historian, and our writer today is Troy Bramson, who is here to talk about his new book, Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny. We gathered on Camaragal land, part of the Australian East Coast taken for King George without treaty or compensation, first by James Cook in 1770, then by Arthur Phillip in 1788, when half the continent was declared British territory. More specifically, Camaragal country entered the Sydney property market in 1794, when 30 acres around Kirribilli was granted to Samuel Lightfoot without any negotiation, and the rest followed quickly. Now, onto the book. I suspect that many, perhaps most Australians of a certain age, have Bob Hawke memories, whether they're first-hand or, or not. The image of an ebullient Prime Minister bouncing up and down in his seat announcing an unofficial public holiday after the America's Cup win in 1983 has been broadcast so many times it has entered the collective consciousness. That was the first heady decade of, neo, of the neoliberal ascendancy and Hawke's government was attempting to chart a course between a social contract and laissez-faire. Sometimes that meant consorting with the new breed of multimillionaires like Alan Bond, whose super yachts and white shoes became a trademark of greedy development. My first memory is a little older, possibly because the ABC current affairs show This Day Tonight was compulsory viewing in our house. The phrase terrible, terrible shirt has stayed with me since the summer of 1975 when the Federal Labor Conference was held in the New South Wales coastal town of that name, attended by delegates in short-sleeved shirts decorated with Hawaiian and batik prints. The venue was the suitably named Hotel Florida. Clothing symbolises much, whether shoes, shirts or swimsuits, for perhaps the most enduring image of that event was of Bob Hawke, dressed only in patterned speedos, next to Jim Ken's secretary, Glenda Bowden, who was wearing only a bikini. And I discovered, here's the photograph here for you to look at when you buy the book. I discovered in Troy's book that they were having an affair at the time during the conference. Bob was 45, Glenda just 23, a different era. A second memory was travelling in India in 1987 with a Penguin paperback copy of Blanche Dalpuget's biography of Hawke, first published in 1982. And it was so thick, the spine broke. And that production floor allowed me to pass sections back to my girlfriend as we bounced and laboured up Himalayan foothills in an overcrowded bus. We both thought it a very good read. In 1982, Bob Hawke still had 37 years to live. My broken Penguin paperback edition of Blanche's biography ran to 426 pages. Troy Bramston conducted the last ever interview with the man in 2019 and his study comes in just shy of 600 pages, not including endnotes. That is testament to the significance of the life being reviewed. Bob Hawke was one of Australia's most consequential prime ministers and one of its biggest personalities in or out of politics. His relationship with Paul Keating, first partner then rival, made up, in Troy's words, Australia's greatest political duo. 
Hawke himself qualified that somewhat by suggesting they were the greatest duo since Curtin and Chifley. Troy Branston is one of Australia's leading political biographers and historians. His 11 books include Paul Keating, The Big Picture Leader, Robert Menzies, The Art of Politics, Rudd, Gillard and Beyond, and among the others are The Whitlam Legacy and Looking for the Light on the Hill, Labor's Modern Challenges. He edited For the True Believers, Great Labor Speeches that Shaped History. Those were chosen with the eye of a political observer and an insider, for Troy himself was a speech writer for Kevin Rudd. He's been a staff writer at the Australian newspaper since 2011. Please join with me in turning off your mobile phones and welcoming Troy Bramston. Yes. I'll just start with that. Thank you, Ian. And thank you all for, for coming here today. It's great to be back at Stanton Library. I've been here probably four or five times talking about different books. And let me also acknowledge the traditional owners and elders on the land on which we gather today. Um, let me also acknowledge Jay from Constant Reader, um, who is a big part of this community. And it is a great literary community. And so thank you for coming along and, and sharing your interest with me in, in Bob Hawke. I first met Bob Hawke in 1994, when I was just 18 years old and I was in my first year at university. I went to a dinner and I approached Hawke and as he shook my hand, he looked deep into my eyes and he asked my name. Now for me, the room seemed to blur and the sound dulled. It was like being struck by lightning. And I realised what so many others, you know, probably thousands of people, had experienced throughout Hawke's life. He was charisma personified. I later learnt that much of Hawke's political success, particularly on television in the 1960s and 70s, was that he imagined talking to just one person. And so that explains much about Hawke's ability to communicate and connect with everyday Australians. Now, I once told him that when I was in primary school in the 1980s, that we had to do a school project on a famous Australian. And half the class chose Bob Hawke, the other half chose Paul Hogan. <laughs> now, I had, to con I had to confess to Bob many years later that I chose Paul Hogan. <laughs> he thought that was hilarious. Um, I was intrigued, I was fascinated, I was interested in Bob Hawke as a man, as a person, but also as a political leader. So over many, many years I studied his life, I wrote about it, and I got to know him as a journalist and as a historian. I interviewed Hawke about 20 times over about 15 years or so, including for this book. And as Ian mentioned, I was, uh, it was a great privilege to be the last person to ever interview Hawke in, in 2019. Hawke supported this book by also giving me access to his vast archive of personal papers. But it is an unauthorised biography, and Hawke asked for no control over the manuscript or anything that I would conclude or write in the book. So Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny tells the story of an extraordinary life, from border town in South Australia to the lodge in Canberra and beyond. The book is about the real Hawke, the complete man, chronicling the stunning triumphs and the terrible lows, a life riddled with huge flaws but also great virtues, 
marked by redemption and reinvention, which changed Australia and shaped the world. There are new insights in the book drawn from newly discovered archival documents and interviews about his upbringing, his childhood, his university education, his deep love for Hazel, their often stormy marriage and family life, his career in the trade union movement, and his rise to become the greatest ever champion of Australian working men and women, his extraordinary prime ministership, which transformed Australia's economic, social and environmental policy settings, and his post-prime ministerial life, his devotion to Blanche, his business interests and his thoughts on modern politics and prime ministers. Now, as I say, Hawke's life was one of constant reinvention and redemption. He was born in the small country town of Bordertown in South Australia in 1929. He grew up the son of a clergyman and a school teacher, and he was showered with parental love and told that he was special. Indeed, he was destined for greatness. Now, Hawke downplayed notions of divine intervention in his life, but he did tell me that he felt there was some kind of guidance, and that was a word he used uh, throughout his life. A turning point was a motorbike accident that he had in Perth in 1947 while he was at university. Hawke nearly died, and so he decided to make the most of his life. He was a deeply religious young man, but his faith was shattered in 1952 during a Christian student conference in India where he witnessed widespread poverty. Hawke had first seriously thought about public service of some kind when he won a Rhodes Scholarship to commence at Oxford University in 1953. And at Oxford, and later at the Australian National University, he was eyeing a, a career as an academic. He had actually earlier thought about becoming a farmer or a doctor. But at Oxford, he wrote a thesis on the basic wage and the Australian industrial relations system. Now, Oxford had a big impact on Hawke's life, more so than I think other biographers have realised. It shaped his work ethic, his liberal values, his debating style, how he related to others, and it gave him his cause in life, which was the championing of working men and women. And so in 1958, he was appointed the ACTU's research officer and advocate. He put his thesis into practical action. He dazzled the industrial tribunals and the courts with the force of his argument that wages should reflect productivity and prices. He won several critical cases, securing big pay rises for working men and women, and his star was ascendant. In 1969, Hawke won election as the ACTU president. And over the next decade, he earned a reputation for resolving intractable industrial disputes. He led the union movement into a number of prominent enterprises and he became a significant contributor to political debates here and overseas. He was the most brilliant, articulate and effective leader the trade union movement had ever produced in Australia and he had finally found an outlet for his talents. But the question of when he would go into politics percolated through the 1970s. And the idea that Hawke could one day be Prime Minister seemed to excite many people but repulsed others. But nevertheless, it remained an idea so pregnant with promise that it was fixed in the public mind. The problem 
was that Hawke was a notorious drinker, an infamous womaniser, and prone to angry public outbursts. So his emotions, whether revealed as tears or temper, were often vividly on display. He was a terrible, loathsome, awful drunk and could get verbally abusive when inebriated. He actually first drank alcohol while studying at the University of Western Australia in 1949. And he entered the Guinness Book of Records while at Oxford University for downing 2.5 pints of beer in 12 seconds flat. In the 1960s or 70s, Hawke might drink 20 beers in one session. He was also a serial adulterer. Now, some women threw themselves at him, mesmerised by his charisma and power. Others he flatly propositioned. And when he was scorned, he would often lash out and humiliate those women. He could be very selfish and very careless. He married Hazel Masterson in 1956 and they raised three children, Susan, Stephen and Rosalind. They lived with the roiling turmoil that most Australians only read about or saw on television and they all suffered because of it. Hawke personified the very best and the very worst in Australians. He was a deeply flawed person and his behaviour would not be tolerated today. He could be vain and arrogant one moment and then compassionate and inspiring the next. He embodied a mix of contrasts and contradictions, but he was still an authentic political leader. He never hid who he was or tried to be somebody that he was not. So the book, accordingly, deals with this complex hawk personality, the light and the shade, the real man behind the legend. The demons are not ignored and they are not sanitised, which I think they have been in previous books. They were, in fact, a big part of his life, the demons, and it would be a dereliction of my duty as a biographer if I did not explore them fully. Now, Hawke gave up the booze and he stabilised his emotions to become Prime Minister in 1983, but he still had a steady group of women who satisfied his sexual needs. He had affairs as Prime Minister, including at the Lodge. Hawke did not believe that he had an addictive personality. He refused to accept that he was an alcoholic and he would never have accepted that he had an addiction to sex. In truth, he was both a highly functioning alcoholic and a sex addict. Now, the World Health Organisation has identified compulsive sexual behaviour disorder and I argue that Hawke had it. He had always lived a supercharged existence. In the 1960s and 70s especially, his celebrity status reached its zenith. As ACTU advocate and then ALP president, um, and, AL and ACTU president, he was engaged with the public consciousness like no other political or union figure before. He was at the epicentre of a great celebrity drama in which he was the dominant figure. The drinking, the womanising, the emotional reactions, the critical assessments of Malcolm Fraser or Gough Whitlam, the audacious idea of consensus, the man with the ear of politicians and business titans, and the never-ending speculation about when he would go into politics. 
Many Australians remember Hawke in the 1970s with the, the long, wavy, metallic hair, the tanned, soft olive skin, the arched eyebrow, the mouth with the corners turned down and the darting eyes with cigar in hand, which became legendary. He carried himself in this era with a sense of satisfaction and he projected confidence. Now, television was his premier means for talking to everyday Australians. And at a moment's notice, like a board being clacked on a soundstage, he could transform to suit the audience. He was a supreme performer who could turn on a range of emotions as though flicking through index cards until he found the right one. Charm, persuasion, indignation, anger, sadness, humour. Voters tuned in time and time again because they did not know which Hawke they would get. One of the most extraordinary interviews that Hawke did in the 1970s was with female journalist Tony McRae for the Sun newspaper. Over a bottle of Verve Clicquot at the Boulevard Hotel in Sydney, Hawke loosened his tie, he kicked off his suede shoes and he spoke about his family, his propensity to cry, his sleeping and eating habits and he assessed Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser. And he did one-arm push-ups while ruminating on the possibility of being Prime Minister one day. He said, I'm not expecting that the Prime Minister should be offered to me on a platter, switching arms, but if it was offered to me on a platter, I'd do it bloody well. Now, Ros Kelly told me about Hawke campaigning with her in the seat of Canberra in 1980. It did not exactly go to plan. While driving around in her car, they stopped off at a, a set of traffic lights and looked across and saw two young women in a VW with the hood down. The girls noticed Hawke sitting in the car and shouted, Bob, come and join us. At that moment, Bob jumped out of Ros Kelly's car and back into their VW and disappeared for two hours. He later joined Ros at a shopping centre as if nothing had happened to resume the campaigning. He then asked the local chemist about the best shampoo for his hair. Now, Australians accepted Hawke for his faults. He did have authenticity and he did not pretend to be somebody that he wasn't. And he did go off the drink and moderate his behaviour to demonstrate that he could be a disciplined Prime Minister. And so by the time Hawke did reach the Prime Ministership in 1983, he was the brightest star in the political galaxy. For decades, he'd been a larrikin intellectual celebrity. Labor MPs likened Hawke to being the Pope on the campaign trail as people just wanted to touch him. Women would thrust their children into his arms and steal a kiss for themselves while men shook his hand and patted him on the back. Australians saw Hawke sing, dance, hold a bat, kick a football, throw a frisbee, shake hands with children and pat small animals. His central ambition was to unite and reconcile the nation after years of division and confrontation with the promise of consensus policy making. As Prime Minister, as he had done at the ACTU, he brought Australians together. In 1984, his approval rating reached an astonishing 78%. No Prime Minister has come within cooey of this figure in the decades before or after. His overarching vision for Australia was to have a more competitive 
and productive economy and a compassionate society at home and to be an independent and respected nation abroad. He wanted to end the policy stagnation and transform Australia's economic, social, environmental and policy settings for a new age. Consider the social policy achievements. Medicare, the Sex Discrimination Act, doubling high school completion rates, overhauling universities and targeting welfare to those most in need. The economic reforms are legendary. Floating the dollar, the accord to moderate wages, dismantling the tariff wall, privatisation, superannuation and the first budget surpluses since the 1950s. And the landmark environmental achievements, saving the Daintree, saving Kakadu and the Franklin River in Tasmania. We became more prosperous, better educated, more equal, more compassionate, more entrepreneurial, more optimistic and proud of our nation. Hawke played an important role on the world stage as a mediator between East and West. He developed close relations with Cold War leaders, he strengthened the US alliance and he made engagement with Asia a priority. His personal diplomacy safeguarded Antarctica from mining, he led the fight against South African apartheid and he initiated the APEC Trade Forum. I argue that this vast policy legacy plus his personal popularity and four election victories in a row is unmatched by any other Prime Minister or government post-war. Much of these achievements are due to the exceptionally talented group of ministers around the Cabinet table, which I'll talk about shortly. Hawke set the standard for how a Prime Minister should lead their nation, their government and the party. Many of Hawke's parliamentary colleagues thought he would never be Prime Minister, let alone a highly disciplined one. But as President of the ACTU and as a member of the Reserve Bank Board, he had a good grounding in public administration. While the government traded on Hawke's popularity, he had to master the machinery of government to be truly effective. So this model of governing that Hawke established, I think, is an underrated aspect of his legacy. The model had as its hallmarks a good cabinet chairman of the board who worked cooperatively with ministers. He welcomed frank and fearless advice from public servants and staff. He put the national interest ahead of political self-interest. He had a strong work ethic, focus and drive and he knew how to communicate effectively with voters. These things are an underrated aspect of Hawke's legacy. It is essentially the art of politics, which I think has been in short supply in recent years. Of course, Hawke was helped by having a very talented group of ministers. Paul Keating, the dynamic treasurer, described himself to me as the managing director to Hawke's chairman of the board. They were, for the most part, a great duo. Liberal leader John Hewson said that the Hawke cabinets were the best since Federation. Hawke was not an interventionist. He was consultative and collaborative and he let ministers run their own portfolios. The array of talent sitting around the cabinet table, especially in the first two or three terms, was extraordinary. Paul Keating, Bill Hayden, Lionel Bowen, John Button, Don Grimes, Gareth Evans, Susan Ryan, Peter Walsh, Mick Young, and the list goes on and on. The first cabinet was also extraordinarily diverse 
in their backgrounds, in their education and their work experiences. There were trade unionists, such as Hawke, Keating, Ralph Willis, Mick Young, uh, Stuart West. There was a shearer in Mick Young, a doctor in Don Grimes, a farmer in Peter Walsh, a former policeman in Bill Hayden, lawyers such as Lionel Bowen and John Button, a schoolteacher like Susan Ryan, and an academic like Gareth Evans. Several had already had ministerial experience or had served on the backbench in government. In time, the ministry would include three Rhodes Scholars, Hawke, Beasley and Neil Blewett. Bowen had served in World War II, Young had been Labor's National Secretary and Gordon Scholes had been Speaker of the House of Representatives. Most had working class or middle class backgrounds. The diversity of this experience has, I think, been lost in modern politics in terms of considering cabinets. Hawke often let cabinet debates run and he allowed ministers to have a say but would intervene from time to time on critical issues. Debates and those in the party were often robust, but Hawke kept the government largely united. He had assembled a talented personal staff and he did respect public servants. He had learnt from the mistakes of the Whitlam government in administration and cabinet and party management. He was, I think, wise to appoint four public servants as his chief of staff. And the personal style that Hawke brought to the Prime Ministership was also critical. He was an effective communicator and a powerful persuader. He had a strong work ethic, as I say, and energy and drive that he applied in the Cabinet room and outside it. Now, while luck typically ran his way, such as facing a divided opposition, he also showed courage and took policy and political risks. He won the 1987 and 1990 elections after being behind in the polls. I think Australians recognise that Hawke loved them and loved their country. He had this authenticity, he had this credibility, and he was res respected and trusted for most of that period. Now, the English journalist Walter Badgett described a statesman as someone of common opinions and uncommon abilities, who most felicitously expresses the creed of the moment, who administers it and embodies it in laws and institutions. I think Hawke made mistakes and he had regrets, not least the 1990 recession, but he had these essential elements of a statesman in spades. He also changed the Labor Party by retuning its philosophy, transforming its governing culture and making it electorally dominant. Um, this has been a mammoth project for me. Um, it's been involved turning over something like one million pages of archival documents here and overseas, uh, reading about 100,000 newspaper articles and hundreds of books. I love spending time in archives and in libraries because it's like stepping into a time machine and going to the past. And so the documents that I uncovered for this book are significant. I want to tell you about a few of them. They include unpublished memoirs, diaries, letters and meeting records, briefing papers and also some handwritten notes. And it was a privilege to be able to interview more than 100 people for this book. Hawke's family, his friends, his school and university classmates, union and party figures, ministerial colleagues and even international contemporaries like George H.W. Bush, John Major, Brian Mulroney, George Schultz and James Baker. 
I also interviewed all the Prime Ministers who succeeded Hawke, from Paul Keating to Scott Morrison, and include their assessments of him in the book. And I include Hawke's assessments of them in the book, and not all of them are as kind as they are about him. Now, I always checked and double-checked things in the book. I remember ringing former Minister Robert Ray one day to fact-check something. Ray said to me, I guess this is one of your challenges, Troy. You've got to work out who's telling the truth, who's telling a half-truth, or forgetting something entirely. And I said to Robert, but everything you've told me is 100% accurate, isn't it? And he said, well, about 90% of it. Now, I was interested in a phone call that uh, Foreign Minister Gareth Evans had with James Baker, the US Secretary of State, at the start of the Gulf War. And Evans wanted maximum consultation during the war. So James Baker told me, Gareth Evans wanted me to tell him exactly when the balloon was going to go up to start the war. He and I had a few words over that, but I enjoyed working with Gareth. Now, Gareth Evans had a slightly different version of that phone call. Evans remembered James Baker telling him, who's running this effing war? We appreciate your support, but we are running this war. We have the military leadership. You guys in Australia will cooperate with us. Now, knowing how tough James Baker is, I think Gareth Evans's recall of their conversation is probably more accurate. Bob Sorby, as a political advisor to Hawke, was also very fun to interview. He told me that Hawke's back went into a spasm one night while smashing golf balls off a tee at a driving range in Canberra in 1987. Hawke was temporarily crippled. So Sorby discreetly got Hawke into the car and returned to Parliament House. Aussie, the butler, organised a hot water bottle, aspirin and a cigar and propped Hawke up in his Prime Ministerial chair. About half an hour later, Sorby looked through the peephole into the Prime Minister's office and was startled to see a head going up and down behind the desk. Sorby said to me, what's going on here? He thought. I knew Bob had signed up for a few things, so I thought I'd go in a little bit discreetly. And there was Hawke, on the floor, with his shirt off, while Ozzie the butler sat on his back and gave him a massage. Now, Sorby quickly got Hawke dressed and back into his chair and thanked Ozzie for his service. The point about that story is to demonstrate that Hawke's staff were intensely loyal to him and would do almost anything for him. So in conclusion, let me say this book has been a big part of my life for many years and I have vivid memories of a lot of people such as Graham Frudenberg, Susan Ryan, indeed Bob Sorby, Andrew Peacock and George Schultz who are no longer with us and of course Bob himself. I think the book will be challenging for many people to read and it will shock and surprise those who think they really know Hawke well. But Hawke did trust me to write a serious, well-researched and balanced account of his life, and I think I have. I think what should be front of mind as we remember Hawke is that he loved Australians and they loved him, and we have not had a post-war leader who was more popular, respected or trusted. And so this is what has motivated my three prime ministerial biographies, is to understand their values, their motivations, their ambitions, to understand how they led, how they gained and used political power and their legacy. So as I write in the book, in Hawke, Australians saw the mysterious but always recognisable alchemy of political leadership. And that is what should be remembered above all. Thank you for coming.
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Troy. Um, we've got time for quite a few questions, I think. And I'm not going to pass the microphone around for obvious reasons, COVID and, and all. We are recording this, so it would be great if you could speak up as loud as you can and Troy may repeat your question and then answer it. So maybe I'll go one, two, three first. Yeah, so what, one there. Good question. What was Hawke's opinion of Kevin Rudd? Uh, not much, um, in short. He thought that Kevin Rudd did some good things, like the apology to the stolen generations, uh, the response to the global financial crisis, but he thought Rudd had great opportunities leading Labor back to power in 2007 and then squandered it um, because he misunderstood the basics of governing and personal relationships. Um, Hawke was just absolutely shocked that Rudd treated his Cabinet colleagues with contempt, kept public servants uh, waiting, didn't listen to their advice, treated his staff with contempt, um, was arrogant and was aloof, and the administration of government overwhelmed Kevin Rudd and he was not able to focus on things that well. And so when Kevin Rudd was challenged by Julia Gillard in his first term after just two and a half years as Prime Minister, Hawke felt that he had almost invited that challenge because of his poor relationships. And so he judged um, Rudd very, very poorly. Question there? Yep. Um, thank you, Troy. A very interesting talk. Uh, what was Hawke's record with Indigenous affairs? And there were some disappointments in that area, weren't Yes, Hawke's uh, record on Indigenous affairs was, was disappointing. Um, he said to me that that was probably one area of lingering and lasting regret. Um, I write a lot in the book about, about this. There are some things that they did, such as establishing ATSIC, which was a good idea, I guess, in, in, in principle. Um, he established the Council for Reconciliation. Um, he facilitated the handback of um, Uluru. Um, and he had great respect and admiration for Indigenous people, identified with them. They respected him. But the big failure was land rights, and Labor had set up a national model for how land rights should proceed, where Indigenous communities could make a claim on, on Crown land um, or seek compensation. But he essentially walked away from that because of pressure from Brian Burke and the West Australian government. And a lot of people, including myself, judge Hawke very harshly for that. I'll just say this too, that this is a difficult issue. It's tricky, it's complicated. But I do think that Hawke had great capacities as a political leader, that he could take on very difficult, very challenging things in economic policy or social policy or environmental policy, and he could have applied those same skills to Indigenous issues, particularly land rights. And so I mark him down harshly for not taking that opportunity and using those talents which he had. And I interviewed, um, you know, interviewed all, all the surviving ministers from his government, and they judge him harshly as well. Uh, and Jerry Hand, who was Indigenous Affairs Minister or Aboriginal Affairs Minister for part of that period, said that the Indigenous community would never forgive Hawke for missing that opportunity, and he felt that they were right to have that view. There's a question here.
Yeah, the question is about Hazel Hawke being his, his great asset. No, no, absolutely. This is one of my key aims in the book, you know, was to rediscover Hazel Hawke, uh, bring her back into the Hawke narrative. She is the most important relationship he had, um, not only in personally in the sense of being both mother and father to their three children, but an enormous emotional support to him. He couldn't have achieved half the things he did in the ACTU or as Prime Minister without her support. She was a national treasure. Um, I got to know Hazel a little bit many years ago. We both served on the Centenary Federation Committee. I have deep admiration and respect for her. And I tell her story in the book right from the very beginning. One of the early chapters in the book is just called Hazel. And it's about her and how she got together with Bob and their relationship. And of course, it goes through the entire story. So I've been very disappointed that in recent years, Hazel seems to have been lost um, as part of the Bob story. And so she has been restored, I think, faithfully in the book. And I was able to interview Susan and Stephen Hawke, uh, two of his children, who don't really give many interviews, particularly Stephen. Um, and they were both very encouraged by me wanting to rediscover their mother and tell her story in the book. That's right. That is, that, that is revealed in my book. Um, that in the 1970s, uh, Bob Hawke was a superstar, he was a celebrity, um, but that cut no currency when he was at home. Um, and Hazel, he couldn't, he couldn't work a washing machine, he couldn't turn on the oven, um, he was pretty hopeless. He didn't help with the cleaning or the cooking, um, and so that led to a lot of rows with him and the children. And so um, Hazel asked Bridget Warne, Shane Warne's mother, to come and help clean the house, and she did that a few days a week. And uh, Jason and Shane Warren would go over to the Hawke house um, and hang out with them. And Hawke actually gave Shane Warren a few tips on how to bowl on the family tennis court. <laughs> There's a question there. Oh, one there, one there, one there. Sorry. No. There's one behind you first. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no. Yeah, look, I mean, this is a contested area, I guess, of the Hawke government in terms of the, the, the Dawkins reforms, the Dawkins revolution, as it was called, and I write about that in the book. Um, but there are other aspects to that, which is... what I think what I actually said in the speech was he enlarged the university sector, enabled more people to be able to go to university with the HEX scheme that was introduced, where students like myself um, would pay a modest amount... Um, that opened up more places for people to go to university uh, because it broke the nexus between government funding and places. It meant that universities could have more places open because students would be making what was then a pretty modest contribution uh, to their overall education. So um, the university sector and indeed the technical college sector, you know, uh, dramatically transformed in terms of the amount of students going. So I take your point about the the difficulties with some of the Dawkins reforms, but I'm, I'm praising the fact that he expanded opportunity for people to earn a degree or earn a trade. And one here. I do. The question's about 
what I write about the pilot strike and Tiananmen Square. I can give you a couple of brief anecdotes about, about those and what I learnt. Um, the pilot strike was very, very significant for the Hawke government because the pilots union wanted increases in wages of something like 30%. And, of course, there had been the accord framework which moderated pay rises across the board to keep inflation low in return for what was called social wage benefits, such as increased investment in education, um, more welfare spending um, or things like Medicare. And uh, the pilot strike challenged the accord and threatened the economy. And so, so Hawke took a very hard line against it and the union movement was united um, in that view. The pilots weren't part of the ACTU. And um, Hawke was very strong on that and he tried to negotiate with the pilots union a number of times they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't negotiate, they wouldn't come to reason. And Hawke said, if I have to break you, I will. Because he couldn't let it jeopardise the whole industrial relations framework and that would have led to massive pay, pay increases across the board or pay claims. Um, and so the union was broken. I mean, they lost in the industrial tribunals. That union was destroyed. A lot of pilots lost their jobs and the impact on families was, was devastating. Um, Peter Abels. Yeah, I do, I do write about his relationship with Peter Abels um, over, over many years. But let me just come back to the Tiananmen Square point you raised. Um, this was a significant issue because Hawke had invested a lot in his relationship with China. He saw the great potentials in terms of the iron ore trade and trade between Australia and China, you know, turbocharged throughout the first half of the 1980s and added much to our national prosperity and he had developed a very close relationships with Chinese leaders. And for the first time, I describe in detail what those conversations were about based on transcripts of their meetings and so on. And Hawke had a great relationship with Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang, both leaders in the Chinese Communist Party. And they believed in a China that over time would become more liberal, more open, more free. And Hawke subscribed to that idea and he had that hope. Um, both of those figures... Uh, one of them had a heart attack, which led to the Tiananmen Square. The other one was put under house arrest. And so that began a new China, which we see today. And Hawke told me that his heart broke for China because he saw a different China emerging that was scuttled by those um, protests. And, of course, he did read out a famous cable um, that had described the events in and around Tiananmen Square which led to the tears streaming down his face in the Great Hall in Parliament House. Um, I won't go on much further, but there's a lot of detail about that cable and in the book whether about all of it, all of it wasn't entirely accurate. Hawke was advised not to read from the cable, um, but he did it anyway. And relationship went into a deep freeze uh, after that, and it was many years later until Hawke went back to China. A question there, yeah. I do, yes. So the question is... I'm, I'm repeating questions for the, for the yeah. audio recording, so you know. Um, 
The question is about Hawke's confrontation with Richard Carlton in February 1983 on television when he, he became Labor leader and Bill Hayden had stepped down. Um, Richard Carlton said, you know, you must have blood on your hands and Hawke got very angry and said, you haven't improved, have you? Um, and got very cranky. Now, Hawke was right to do that because there was no blood on his hands. What had happened was is that Bill Hayden had resigned. There was no leadership challenge. There was no uh, demands that he stepped down publicly. There was no tap on the shoulder. There were no knives in the darkness of night or in the back rooms. It was an arrangement the two had come together um, to do. Now, Bill Hayden, I interviewed a number of times for the book. He found those events very, still very difficult, very emotional to talk about, very sad, because on the day that he resigned in favour of Hawke, Malcolm Fraser called the 1983 election. And so four weeks later, Bob Hawke was Prime Minister. Um, I write a lot about that, and in fact, one of the opening chapters deals with this because I was astonished uh, to be given access to Bill Hayden's personal papers. And in those papers at the National Library, I'm, I'm turning over a folder one day, turning over the pages in a folder, and I find these letters. There's a letter from Bill Hayden to Bob Hawke and from Bob Hawke to Bill Hayden stepping out the terms of a leadership transition, which have never been revealed before. And they are so significant, I put them in the book as in full, as an, as an appendix, so you can read. And Hayden wanted a series of guarantees to step aside for Hawke, such as he wanted to be made foreign minister in a Labor government, he wanted his supporters in caucus to be looked after, he wanted his staff to be found new jobs, and he wanted the possibility of being given a diplomatic appointment down the track. And Hawke agreed to all of that in writing. And this is unusual, and no wonder it was kept secret, but those two letters became the foundation stone for the Hawke government, a seamless leadership transition. And Hawke and Hayden worked very well in government together. Hawke, of course, later appointed Hayden as Governor-General. Um, and they both spoke very, very highly of each other in the interviews that I gave. And other ministers, I asked, what was their relationship like? Um, but they were professional, and they put the country first. And so Bill Hayden had a lot to be bitter about, but he wasn't like recent prime ministers. Um, he put the country first. He put the party first, and he was a very effective foreign minister and a, and a good Governor-General. One last question here. I'm not going to make any apology for writing for The Australian. It is the national broadsheet newspaper. Um, I've worked there for more than, more than 10 years. They give me every opportunity I ask for to write things, write books, write about Bob Hawke. Um, the Australian newspaper supported Bob Hawke. It supported Paul Keating. It supported Gough Whitlam. supported Kevin Rudd. Um, and I make no apology for that. And I'm, I'm sorry you had to ask that question, but um, that's up to you. But I, I support a diversity of media opinion. Um, and media views, and no one at The Australian has ever asked me to write anything in a particular way or not write anything. I've got a free voice and, and I use it, so I'm very proud of that. Thank you. And I'll take that as a thank you for Troy. That was a great talk. Thanks so much, Troy. Thank, thank you. you. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. 
catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of Writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.